Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> awesome. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Good. We're going to dismiss our children downstairs. Good to see everyone this morning. It is not the fall, but oh boy, does it feel like the fall. Am I the only one that feels that way? Maybe I have the parents of teenagers and their busy schedules in school and soccer. I don't know, but it definitely feels like the fall. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Don't all religions teach the same thing? Have you ever heard that question? Maybe you've asked that question yourself before. Depending on the tone, that question can be just based on curiosity, like trying to understand. And yet at the same time, that question can have behind it kind of a, a skepticism or certain assumptions that guide it, that it's almost asked rhetorically, right? Well, yes, of course. It's an interesting question. Today we begin a series called Questioning Christianity. It's a six-week series just to simply engage some of the questions that we often hear in culture or uh, even you know, prominently today, but maybe questions have been asked for, for decades or even centuries. Questions that uh, really get at uh, some of the fundamental things of our faith. So our hope is that over the next six weeks that we can take an honest look at some of these questions. Right? We, uh, there's, a, there's a frustration when questions are asked and they're ignored. Right? Like when, when, when there are questions and concerns that we have, and we raise them, but it's almost like people ignore them. There's a certain emotion that we can feel, and it's frustrating. And I wonder if some of these questions in society uh, people are asking, and, and maybe the church is just dismissing them, not willing to address them, not willing to take a hard look at some of the difficult questions that undergird some of the skepticism and doubt of our day. Well, it's our hope in this six weeks to take an honest look at these questions. And also, I think it's really important to not be uh, haughty or unnecessarily dismissive of people's concerns. It would be our hope to approach these questions with humility. We're not here uh, acting like we know everything about everything as a church. It's a real unhelpful way to approach uh, questions that real people have and the concerns that they kind of walk with and deal with every day. It's our hope to approach these questions with clarity. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. This is what we understand to be true. But understand, it's our hope to walk through these questions with the humility and with the tone of grace. Right? We're all trying to figure out some of the answers to these questions. And I would presume that 
In many ways, some of us in these six weeks have asked these questions ourselves, and we're still kind of wrestling with some of the concerns that will be brought up. So the question is, today, don't all religions teach the same thing? Maybe from a distance we could say yes to that. Right? One scholar pointed out that worldviews and religions often uh, come to answer some of the basic questions of life. Questions about origin. Questions about meaning. About morality. And ultimately, destiny. Right? So every worldview, every religion seems to want to answer those kinds of questions. And one might conclude that, yeah, they use different language or or different terms or come from different backgrounds, but at the end of the day, you really look at it. They're all basically saying the same thing. But if we take a closer look, is that really true? One often logical fallacy that people run into is that they make comparisons without looking at the finer details. So it would be good for us to approach this question by taking a look at the specifics, by taking a look at some of the finer points, taking a closer look at world religions, taking a closer look at what Christianity believes, and see if they or they are not actually teaching the same thing. We're going to look at it in three main areas. We're going to look at how world religions look at their view of God, their doctrine of God. That's the first area we're going to take a look at together. Second area we're going to take a look at is their doctrine, their understanding of revelation. What source of truth does each religion hold on to okay, as revelation and truth? And last, we're going to take a look at what each religion views about salvation. Their view of God, their view of revelation, and their view of salvation. So, listen, renovation people and those new to the church this morning we're going to do something a little bit different than we're normally accustomed to in this next six weeks. Normally, we come together and we take a look at one specific passage, and we focus and we hone in and we expose and we teach from that one passage, maybe sometimes referring to some other passages to reinforce that passage. But in this series, we're going to be bouncing around. So in some ways, you know, we need to have a little bounce in this series, all right? We're going to have to be a little flexible. Reno people, we're going to have to be a little open to some new ways of looking at the Scriptures and hearing a message this morning. So please bring your Bibles each week. Be ready to flip around. Be ready to bounce. Most of the Scriptures, if not all, will be on the screen if we ever just lose our place or can't seem to keep up. And, And as a preacher, and I believe I speak for all of us, we will do our best to minimize the bouncing and the jumping around and kind of focus in but this will be a little bit different. We're looking at the symphony of Scripture and how each part can play a role in giving us a full sound when we look at these passages. Does that make sense? All right, so I'm going to tell you, grab your Bibles, open to 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. through 
1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, the question we're asking again is, don't all religions teach the same thing? Before I read that and the other verses, I'm going to say a short prayer for us to seek the Spirit's help. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we pray that the Spirit of God would be at work in our hearts and in our minds, showing us the truth. We need you this morning. Teach us. Guide us. If there's anyone here this morning that needs a special touch, a special uh, care from your hand, I pray that you would be uh, just t- uh, be with them in a unique way this morning. Draw them to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. Again, we're looking at the view of God. The view of God. Paul is addressing in this particular chapter a concern among the Corinthian Christians about whether or not they have the freedom to partake of food that has been offered to idols. And in his response in instructing them, he is going to speak to them in a way that reinforces a Christian conviction about the nature of God. Look at what he says. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Again, he's addressing the concern about eating food that has been offered to idols, but here he is addressing it in a way to reveal something that is distinct about Christianity. And that is the exclusive claim that there is only one true God. And he names him the Father, verse 6, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. It's monotheistic. What that means is, is that Christians believe that there is only one true and living God. That's reinforced in Deuteronomy 4. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Or Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Christianity believes that there is only one God. Now that doesn't necessarily distinguish it from every other world religion. There are other monotheistic faiths. Yet, this conviction that there is only one God we understand is revealed further, with further clarity, throughout all of the Old and New Testament, progressively revealed that this view, 
that there is only one God is also understood to be a God that exists in three persons. The Christian faith is Trinitarian, believes that this one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christian faith believes in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existing fully as God. That's distinctly Christian. But this Christian conviction is in contrast to many of the other world religions. For instance, Buddhism is essentially non-theistic. They don't necessarily believe in the existence of a God at all. Hinduism is often considered to be polytheistic. They can claim to worship 33 million gods. Very distinct from Christianity. 33 million. And yet one scholar pointed out that actually they believe in one God and yet also are willing to uh, admit the, the potential existence of a plethora of other gods. What that means is a Hindu is very tolerant. Right? Very tolerant. I'll never forget when we first began church planting in the, uh, in the late 2008-2009 uh, era, there was an article that came out that explained the, the faith of Americans. And that basically the argument of the, of the article was that Americans are less and less Christian and more and more Hindu. And what did they mean by that? Who would classify America as a Hindu nation? Shocking title. Well, this idea that basically... More and more, America was becoming a pluralistic nation. That basically Americans would generally believe that you can believe in a God of your own choosing. That, that you can embrace any of the uh, millions and plethora of gods, and that was fundamentally acceptable. Hinduism is polytheistic. Islam is also a monotheistic religion. They believe in one God, but they... Uh, identify their God by Allah, which is the Arabic form of the Hebrew word for God, Elohim. They respect Jesus as a prophet. They believe that he was sent by God and a servant of God, but they do not believe that he is God. And so we see that just a closer look at the main world religions, that these religions have distinct views of God. That there is a distinction and a contrast in what they understand about the nature of God. And Christianity worships a God unlike any other. Verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom, all th uh, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So it may be tempting for us to stay at a distance 
and look from far away and begin to assume that at the end of the day, all these religions teach the same thing about the nature of God. And it may even be comfortable for us to embrace such a view. But a closer analysis reveals that Christianity worships a God unlike any other. And these distinctions are real and they matter. So they're not the same, at least when we take a look at their view of God. So Christianity worships a God unlike any other. But what about Revelation? Where do these religions get their truth from? What is their source of revelation and where do they find meaning and purpose and direction when it comes to life and morality and destiny? When it comes to a source of truth, there are clear differences in all world religions. If you're a Buddhist, you find truth in the Dharma. The Dharma is a collection of Buddha's original teachings, which include the four noble truths and the eightfold path to enlightenment. If you're a Muslim, you have a book called the Quran, which is the revelation that was given to the prophet Muhammad about 1,400 years ago. If you're a Hindu, you embrace the Vedas, an ancient Sanskrit text revealed by some kind of absolute power to a small community in northern India in about 1700 B.C. So if you're a Buddhist, it's the Dharma, Buddhist teachings. If you're a Muslim, it's the Quran, revelations given to the prophet Muhammad. And if you're a Hindu, you embrace the Vedas, which is this ancient text that was revealed to a small community in northern India. Christianity also embraces a sacred text. However, this is known as the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. They, we, consider this book to be the very Word of God, inspired by God in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read what may be, for some of you, a very um, familiar passage that gets at our understanding of this book, this sacred text. Paul calls this book the sacred writing. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Follow along with me. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. We believe that this book 
is God's revealed will to us, inspired by Him, and that it alone is clear and sufficient and necessary for us in matters of life and faith. And it holds authority over us as the inspired Word of God. This is distinct from any and any uh, and all other world religions. We embrace this book. It is what we understand to be the Word of God. But not only the Bible, but we also understand that God has revealed Himself not only in the pages of Scripture, these 66 inspired books, but God has also revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-3 through says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christianity believes that God has revealed himself in the Bible. But as we read Hebrews 1, we also believe that in a very special and unique way, and not in any way contradicting or competing with the claims of Scripture, but actually the fullness of all that it reveals about the nature of God, that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. That when, God, when Jesus came into the world in the flesh, He uniquely reveals the nature and the person of God. If you want to know who God is, you must look to Jesus and Jesus alone. That is the teaching of Christianity. You see, in contrast to what other world religions teach, particularly Islam, that believes that Jesus was a prophet, but not the fullness, the exact imprint of the nature of God. Very much distinct. So we see here that the Christianity worships a God unlike any other in that He reveals Himself to us in the Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ. He reveals Himself to us necessarily, which means if He did not reveal Himself to us, we would not know who He is. He has revealed Himself to us clearly. It's not an enigma. It's not a mystery. It is plainly revealed to us in Scripture and in Jesus Christ. He has revealed Himself to us sufficiently. The Scriptures and the Word of God are sufficient for us to know Him and to trust Him. And of course, he has revealed himself with great authority. It is a binding, authoritative book that calls us to faith and submission. And of course, in Christ, he has revealed himself personally. It's an amazing thing to think about. The Christianity embraces the idea that God has revealed himself to a people personally, in a person. Jesus himself even said in John 14, 6, I am the way, 
I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an exclusive, distinctive claim that Jesus Christ Himself makes about His very own nature. He says, you want to know the truth? I am the truth. You must know me. Such a view distinguishes itself from others. And by doing so, it rejects other claims. Right? That's some ways the problem of monotheism when we think about comparing other religions. We can look at them and say they're basically all the same, but when one or another has an exclusive claim that ultimately rejects the others, it leaves us scratching our head. What do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that one religion is staking claim and therefore rejecting another's convictions? Jesus makes that claim. He said, you want to know the truth. you got to know me. And so we see Christianity has this distinct view of God. And Christianity has this distinct view of revelation. That revelation is necessarily, clearly, sufficiently, and authoritatively given to us in the Scriptures. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible and the person, the work of Jesus, reveal to us about our greatest need and our greatest hope? I don't know if you know this name or not. Maybe it shows that I was in tune with like the WWF in the 80s and 90s, which is a little bizarre looking back. But you'll never forget, maybe you don't even know about this, but it's just wild and bonkers to me who ends up holding office, right? We think about Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor of California. Well, the most bizarre thing to me is that Jesse the Body Ventura was the governor of Minnesota, right? And he, during his time as governor, Jesse the Body Ventura said this, religion is a crutch for weak people. Does anybody remember him saying that? Religion is a crutch for weak people. Now, I'm certain that Jesse the Body Ventura was not the first person to say that. Maybe he authored it. I don't know. I don't want to underestimate the brother. But he said, religion is a crutch for weak people. And in some ways, I'm going to concede he's not wrong. Why would I say that? Well, in some ways, those who embrace religion, whatever form they embrace it, understand right, that there's need, that there's a human problem that exists in the world, that there's an undeniable issue that we need freed from and liberated from, that salvation is something that is craved. And so there's a admission of need. There's an admission of weakness. That there undergirds, in some ways, a profound sense of humility 
There's something wrong in the world. Something needs to be done about it. And so what does... What do major world religions say about salvation? What do they see about the greatest problem that we have and what solution there is? Well, first of all, the Buddhist sees that our greatest problem is suffering. And that suffering comes from desire. And therefore, salvation is finding a way to rid ourselves of human desire, to disassociate. From desire. And that through karma and through merit, you can empty yourself of all desire. Through a process of enlightenment. And through that process, you can obtain what they call nirvana. This eternal state of nothingness. And freedom from the cycle of rebirth. Freedom from suffering. that comes from desire. The Muslim believes that one will be saved in the end through a life of submission and obedience to Allah and the teachings of Muhammad, living according to the five pillars of Islam. If you please Allah, you will enter paradise. The Hindu pursues moksha. It's salvation and liberation from the cycles of rebirth through rituals through actions, and a life of devotion to whatever personal God they worship. I think if you analyze major world religions, I think even if you include just Western secularization that's kind of got a residue of Judeo-Christian ethics, that most people would assume that if you do the right thing, if you're a good person, if you do good deeds at least 51% of the time, or if you're not as bad as the other guy or gal, then when you stand before whatever supreme being there is, that you will earn and merit heaven, paradise, eternity full of bliss and enjoyment. It's works. Most religions, even those who don't embrace a particular religion, live with the idea that if I just do the right thing, if I do the right rituals, if I'm not as bad as the other guy, and if, if I'm... I'm evaluated to be 51% of the time not a bad person, then I'm in. Is that you today? Your assurance of eternity based on what you do or don't do? If that's the case, you would fall in line with a very clear similarity that runs across core world religions. I had a couple conversations with neighbors. A lot happens at the mailbox. You should try it. You say, well, they put my mail right on my house next to the door. Well, you're going to have to invite people over to your house then. All right? I go to the mailbox, and a lot happens at the mailbox. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations about the great questions of life just, just stopping to grab the mail. It's interesting to me, recently I ran into someone walking uh, uh, through the neighborhood 
and they knew I was a pastor. We got to talk a little bit about that, and uh, there were some jokes exchanged about, oh, I'm not really a good person, and then, of course, the sweet, loving wife would just say, oh, that's not true, so-and-so, you're, you're a good man. And I just saw what is really just descriptive of the kind of assurance that most people live with, that if I'm just evaluated by myself or others in comparison to really bad things or 51% of the time it seems like I'm doing the right thing, that that will be sufficient enough to be accepted if I ever stand before some supreme being and if heaven and hell are ever at stake, I'll be good. To some degree, that's what we see in world religions. That our hope is tied to how we live. Our hope is tied to what we do and what we do not do. Our hope is tied to a relative righteousness compared to other people in our world. And maybe even some Christians live with that conception. That would be a tragedy compared to what the Bible really teaches. And I'm telling you right now, if there's ever been a distinction between Christianity and other world religions, if there's ever been a distinction to be highlighted, yes, it's the view of God, yes, it's a view of revelation, I would point to you, it is the way of salvation. The Christian view of salvation is unlike any other. Grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 2, 4-9. through 9. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's worth reading again. Ephesians 2, verses 4-9. through 9. Listen to what Paul says. After describing the sinful state in which everyone lives apart from God, he says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, Christians have a unique view of salvation. Christianity preaches a salvation that is by grace alone, that is through faith alone, and is in Christ alone alone. Amen? That is what we preach. It is by grace, verse 8. It is according to God's goodness and His grace toward us. It is received through faith, verse 8. And it is solely in and with Christ, verse 6. What happened when we were dead in our trespasses and sins? It tells us that God did something, not us. That's fundamentally so different than any other world religion. When we were dead in our sin, God did something. 
right? Christianity worships a God unlike any other who reveals himself to us and gives himself to save us. That's the Christian understanding of salvation. God gives himself to save us. When we were dead in our sin, God did something. He gave his one and only son who lived a perfect life to die on a cross in our place for our sin. He took upon himself all the punishment, all the, all the wrath that our sin deserved. And he gave himself for us, Paul goes on later to say. He says that he raised us up with him. What does that mean? Well, understand that in human history, Jesus died. He died a real death, but death could not hold him. And so he was raised from the dead. And what he's saying here, this, is that salvation is given to us by the work of Jesus applied to us and received by us as we trust in it. There's nothing that we can do to earn or merit salvation from our sin. God did what was necessary in Jesus Christ. There's no other religion like this that puts on display such love, such compassion, such servitude and sacrifice. Salvation is such a distinct conviction in Christianity. In no other religion do you have this. R.C. Sproul says, atonement. In no other religion do you have atonement where God provides the solution that is required. In no other religion do you have this. Christianity worships a God unlike any other who is giving himself to save us. Sproul says, what you don't have in Buddhism, Islam, Confucianism, Shintoism, Taoism, and in these other religions is an atonement. You don't have a way of redemption that you have in Christianity. Nor do you have a living mediator. Moses is dead. Confucius is dead. Muhammad is dead. There is no resurrection in these other religions. Christianity has elements to it that clearly distinguish it from all other religions. And with that distinction comes the claim of Christ that is the only way to God. The atonement, the love of Jesus, manifested and expressed in his self-sacrificing death for us. Christianity preaches a salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so to be saved this morning, turn away from your merit and your works. Turn to Jesus in faith, for it is his death and it is his name by which we must be saved. It is necessary to be saved and it is only achieved and given in Christ. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. It's clear. It's obvious. And we do well to honor and respect the differences in other world religions by recognizing that there is a clear distinction between these religions. It's not all the same. In many ways, to say that becomes somewhat offensive to those of other religions. So what do you think? Do all religions teach the same thing? Do they teach the same thing about God? Do they teach the same thing about revelation? Do they teach the same thing about salvation? I think the evidence clearly points that the answer is no. And that the Christianity that we know worships a God unlike any other who reveals Himself to us and who gives Himself to save us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we praise You this opportunity to look at so many things this morning, to consider Your Word, to consider these questions. Lord, we come to You and we're blown away by the salvation that You offer, by the God that You are, and the truth that You reveal. Draw us to Yourself. Help us to see clearly. And help us to love those in our community that differ in their opinion of these things. And help us to be gracious to them. Help us to be patient in walking with them and considering all these kinds of claims. But I pray that you would draw all people, including those, everyone in this room, to a clear understanding. There is no one like you in all the earth. There is no salvation like yours. It is by grace, through faith, and in Christ alone. We pray this in his name. And everyone said, Amen.